You're listening to audio from Pleasant Valley Community Church. For more information about Pleasant Valley, visit our website at pleasantvalley.cc. Turn with me to the book of Acts, chapter number 8 in your Bible. Acts chapter number 8. Today we are in week 19 of our verse-by-verse study of the book of Acts. And uh, one of my favorite snacks has always been peanuts. But that starter for me as a child is something my dad introduced to me. One of my favorite weekends every year was the first weekend in August. And my dad and I and my Uncle Bob and Josh, who were from Florida, we would travel to Hilton's, Virginia, where we would visit the Carter family which was my grandmother, Sylvia Carter, her people, and we would celebrate good old-fashioned mountain music there in Poor Valley, Virginia. Fun fact about the Carter family fold is that Johnny Cash's last live performance just two months before he died was actually there, and I think we're going to have a picture of Johnny in that last show. Yeah, and to his left is my cousin Jeanette, and to his right was my cousin Joe. They've both passed away since this time as well. Um, But not only was was the mountain music awesome and all the tradition that came with the Carter family. But what I honestly remember even more than that was this little swinging bridge there across the river. My dad and uncle would walk us across. And then we'd go up on the mountaintop where my cousin Clay used to hang glide off the mountain. But also, we would drive through all these old windy roads there in the Clinch Mountains where they had all these little bitty country mountain stores that are not like the 7-Eleven here in Owensboro. I remember even in the 90s, some of those old country mountain stores didn't have indoor plumbing, and so we would get to use the outhouse. And my cousin and I thought that was the coolest thing in the world to get to use an outhouse. Like, man, we should get these in Kentucky. You have to go to Eastern Kentucky to get that. But, But one of the things Dad and Uncle Bob introduced us to at these little mountain stores is they would take us back to their childhood, and they would buy Coca-Cola in the old glass bottle, and they would buy a bag of peanuts and pour the peanuts down in the Coke, and then you drink the Coke and the peanuts together. Anybody ever tried that, experienced that? Some of you old-timers have. No offense, uh, old-timers. But uh, I will warn you, though it is awesome, it is quite risky. It is a a health hazard. You, You might choke, so be careful as you do that. But I learned something, speaking of peanuts, the other day that's pretty interesting. A couple years ago, Brad Rhodes and myself went down to Enterprise, Alabama uh, to talk to a church about grace marriage. And I learned something about Enterprise, Alabama, that right there in the middle of Main Street is a monument that is carved in the likeness of a boll weevil. In early plantation days, almost everybody in Enterprise, Alabama raised cotton. But over time, there was this aggressive, serious pestilence in the area of a small beetle that would puncture the bowl of the plant, and so the cotton crop there in Alabama began to die out. So George Washington Carver, along with some other scientists, put their heads together, and they began to see if there was a substitute crop that could take the place of cotton in that part of the country. And they came up with this idea of raising peanuts. So over time, cotton gins were forgotten in that region, and it actually became known as a major peanut center of the world. And and soon the farmers' profits far exceeded what they had ever earned from their best cotton yield. And in the end, they realized that the destructive little insect 
that they feared so much had actually triggered the research that brought them greater prosperity than they had ever known. And so right on the main street in uh, Enterprise, Alabama, you have a statue with a boll weevil. Now, I, I, I tell you that story because that's sometimes how it works in the kingdom of God. God takes what feels like is destroying you, and he has a way of working it out so that in the end, it's for your good and more blessing and prosperity comes about than if you wouldn't have had the little destructive thing, whatever it is. And that's exactly what we see happening this morning in Acts chapter number 8. Last week, we left it off in Acts 7 with a cold-blooded murder. Stephen, who Luke told us had the face of an angel, was stoned to death in cold blood for preaching the gospel. And if you're anything like me, when you read stories like that, sometimes you wonder, why would God allow that to happen? I mean, Stephen had to have been a pretty awesome guy. He had the face of an angel. And, he, and he's preaching the gospel and people stone him to death. And have you ever just wondered, well, why did God let that happen? Like, why didn't God intervene and, and deliver him? Or why does God allow millions of Christians all over the world today to be persecuted and incarcerated and some of them beheaded or lose their hands just for owning Bibles, for example? Like, why would God let that happen to his kids when they're just trying to be faithful to him? And so last week, we, we talked about spiritual warfare, and we prayed for our protection against the enemy who is out to get us. But we, we, we have to come back and say, in the Scriptures, it is not always God's will to deliver us from suffering in this life. Sometimes the Lord lets you take shots. He allows a destroyer to come after us. But he does it with a purpose. God often intentionally uses suffering and harm in our lives to accomplish his purposes. And clearly this is seen in Acts chapter 8. Let's look at it together. So Stephen is stoned to death for preaching the gospel, Acts chapter 8, verse number 1. And Saul approved of Stephen's execution. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. But then devout men buried Stephen, and they made great lamentation over him. But Saul, who later became Paul, who wrote much of the New Testament, but this is pre-conversion Paul, ravaging the church, was entering house after house. Imagine if you're a, a young family with children at that time, and this, this madman is, is coming from door to door, taking you out and incarcerating you just for believing in Jesus and dragging off men and women and committing them to prison. What you see in these first eight chapters of Acts is an aggressive progression of persecution against the church. In Acts 4, just Peter and John were kind of briefly uh, uh, taken aside, questioned, then released. But then you get to Acts chapter 5, and all 12 apostles are slowly becoming persecuted. Then you get to Acts 7, and it's getting it's intensifying. Stephen is stoned to death, the first Christian martyr in the early church. But now we get to Acts chapter 8, and it's a great persecution, Luke says, against the whole church. Now, here's what we're going to see, though. God is going to sovereignly use this intensifying persecution 
to grow and multiply the church. Verse 4, now those who were scattered... So the early Christians started off in Jerusalem, and because of the persecution, they're being scattered all about, having to leave their homes. But notice they didn't go around complaining and whining. They didn't throw in the towel on their faith. They didn't leave the church. Those who were persecuted and scattered, notice what they did. They went about preaching the word. They're like, take this enemy. You kick me out of my hometown, I'll go preach the gospel in Whitesville. You kick me out of Whitesville, I'll go preach the gospel in Newburgh. They're taking what the enemy means for evil and turning it into good. And specifically in verse 5, Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. Now stop right there. That is a very important development in the book of Acts. That name of Samaria in verse 5 ought to catch your attention because it's not the first time you've seen the name of Samaria in the book of Acts. Go back to what Jesus foretold in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus had been raised from the dead. He's about to go back to heaven to be with the Father. And the last words he gave his followers were this, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. So that's where the gospel started. But now they're getting kicked out of Jerusalem. They're being scattered from Jerusalem because of persecution. So you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So Jesus kind of prophesied that the first stop for the gospel outside of Jerusalem is going to be Samaria. But little did the Christians know what got them into Samaria with the gospel was persecution. Apart from the persecution of the early church... Perhaps they would have been content just to kind of huddle up there in Jerusalem and enjoy one another in a safe, easy version of Christianity where everybody knows everybody and we all go to the same church. But God would not allow complacency to come into the early church. He wouldn't allow laxness to be an option. God allowed the persecution as a means, a sovereign means to scatter his people away from the safety and comforts of home base out into the mission field. And and we know this because look at the result of of the Christians being forced out of Jerusalem in verse 4. Those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down in verse 5 to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. So you have to love this if you're a Christian. The enemy's plan to stop the proclamation of the gospel backfires on him. The persecution didn't smother the gospel. It actually only spread the gospel further. How do you stop this kind of kingdom? Look at what happened as the gospel goes forward in verse 6 through 8. And the crowds, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip. I would ask that you pray that specific prayer for our tent meeting on September 27th on the riverfront, that the crowd gathered under that tent that night would pay attention to the gospel being communicated. But what happened when they paid attention to what Philip was saying, 
They heard him, and they saw the signs that he did. This is the 10th reference to signs and wonders in only eight chapters in the book of Acts. But then demonic spirits are are being cast out as well in verse 7. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. And notice the result of the gospel moving into Samaria. So there was much joy in that city. Don't you wish that could be said about Owensboro, Kentucky? That there would be much joy in this city? But how does God ordain that joy comes into a city? What brought joy to Samaria was not more money and better jobs or a football team that won the state championship or new restaurants or the coolest playground in the world on the riverfront. All those are good things, but that's not what brought joy to Samaria. What brought joy to Samaria is when the gospel of Jesus Christ took over Samaria. And so Pleasant Valley, this is how we love our city. The way you love your neighbor as yourself, the way we improve Owensboro, the way we make Owensboro a happier, more joyful place to live is by giving Owensboro Jesus. If you want to make your workplace a place where job satisfaction is higher, where where morale is higher, where there's more joy and more happiness, take Jesus to your workplace. Only Jesus brings joy in a broken world. But in Acts chapter 8, we see a divine paradox. Did you see what God does? God used the persecution of one city, Jerusalem, to bring salvation and joy to another city, Samaria. God's always at work. So when the enemy persecutes the church... Little does the enemy know he's only pouring gasoline on the fire of the gospel. You can't stop the kingdom of God. The harder you come against the church, the more it grows and thrives historically. So God is saying in Acts 8 to the principalities and powers, Satan, if you want to grow my church, then come against it. Satan, if you want to multiply my church, then try to divide it. Satan, if you want to give birth to another church, then try to kill it. This is why the second and third century theologian Tertullian said in the face of persecution, I love this quote, he said, kill us, torture us, condemn us, grind us to the dust. Your injustice is proof that we are innocent. The oftener we are mown down by you, the more number we grow, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Don't you want to be a part of that movement? You can attack the church. You can throw restrictions against the church. You can take away our tax-exempt status. You can call it hate speech when we preach the truth. You can do whatever you want against the church, but come hell or high water or persecution, you cannot stop the gospel. The gospel is marching on because it is the gospel of Jesus Christ who could not be held down by the grave. Christ is the head of the church, and that means the government or the enemy could take shots at the church all day long, but the gates of hell will not prevail against her because it's Jesus' church purchased with his own blood. So what can we take away from this passage? Well, there's a few things. The first thing is God has sovereignly 
scattered and planted us where we are for the sake of the gospel. Now, I want you to personalize the rest of this message, and I want you to think about the house you live in and the neighborhoods you live in and where you work and where you play and where you work out and, and where you eat dinner on Thursday nights, and I want you to funnel it through this text, that there is a grand design behind your life that is intentional, not random, but intentional. Let me show it to you. In Acts chapter 8 and Acts... Uh, Verse 1 and verse 4, Luke uses the word scattered. I want to talk about that word for just a second. In verse 1, and there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and the Christians were all scattered all throughout the region. Then he says it again in verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. That word scattered comes from a Greek word that means to sow seed. So think about a farmer walking through the field, And he's throwing out the seed. Jesus uses a similar illustration in the Gospels, doesn't he? Okay? So it's as though Luke is saying these early Christians, like seed in the hands of a farmer, are being scattered all throughout the different regions. Now, Boyce points out there are different words for this word scattered in the original Greek language. One of the words for scattered in the Greek means to be scattered out and the item is gone forever. So, for example, think about uh, if if you have a a cremation and you're going to take someone's ashes and throw them in the river. Those ashes are going to be scattered away and you're never going to see them again. Or you could use an illustration of scattered, kind of like the hearts of Tennessee football fans today. Uh, you know, after uh, they were beaten by Georgia State, who was 2-10 and 10 last year. So if you're a Tennessee fan today, your, your heart is just kind of scattered and we'll never see your poor little heart again as it drifts away in the darkness. But, but that's not the word used in verse 1 and verse 4 for the Christians who were scattered away from Jerusalem. Instead, the word Luke uses is a Greek word that means they were scattered in order to be planted. In other words, it was an in, uh, there was an intentionality behind the scattering. Just like a farmer scatters the seed, so the seed will be planted and grow where he sows it. Well, in the same way, God sovereignly orchestrates the events and circumstances in our life, even the drama, even the ugly, even the negativity, even the curveballs and the sickness and the breakup and all that. God sovereignly orchestrates all of that to strategically plant us where he wants us so that we can make him known in that particular place. So I just want you to think for a moment about why you live where you live right now in 2019. Think about what are the circumstances that brought you to where you are? maybe, Maybe you didn't want to live here. Maybe you did, but what got you here? Like, what brought you back here? Let's say you moved, you lived, grew up in Owensboro, went off to college. What brought you back? What, was it a, a job that you never thought you would have? Maybe you, you married someone that was from here. Maybe a parent got sick and you find yourself back here taking care of them. I mean, who, who, any number of things. But what? And now think about where you work or where you go to school. Well, what are the circumstances that got you to where you are? And it's possible. It's some bizarre circumstances that maybe you didn't foresee 
years ago. Maybe you even feel like you were scattered to get here. Maybe you didn't even feel like you chose to come here, but here you are. Well, whatever the circumstances are, even if they're bizarre or unexpected, God sovereignly planted you here. And and I know this because Paul makes the same argument later in the book of Acts. If you flip over to Acts chapter 17, look at what Paul says. This This is really interesting. He says, God made... From one man, that's Adam, every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. He says, having, notice what God did, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they would feel their way toward God and find God. Now, this is fascinating what he's saying. God says, he created Adam in the very beginning. Adam and Eve have kids, right? And they begin to populate and fill the earth all over. But then the second part of verse 26, Paul says, God has determined. So it's been set, it's been arranged, allotted periods and boundaries of people's dwelling places. So Paul says, generally speaking throughout history, God has determined where people groups live and how long they live there. So God has determined our boundaries. God has determined our neighborhoods that we live in and the places that we work. And that shouldn't surprise us because Jesus said God's even numbered the hairs on our head. So if God is a God of detail, and he is not even a bird, Jesus says, falls from the sky apart from the hand of God. So if he, if he counts the birds and if he's numbered the hairs on your head, surely he cares about where you live or where you landed in college, or where you work. Surely God's behind all of those details. So your life is planted where it is planted, not by chance, but by divine providence. If you live in the heartlands, you live there because God strategically placed you in the heartlands. If you live in Deer Valley, God strategically placed you in Deer Valley. If you live off Highway 144, God strategically placed you off Highway 144. If you live in Whitesville, God strategically placed you in Whitesville because God has a mission and God has a vision for the city and for the world. And so he strategically, not randomly, he strategically places and plants his people all over. God doesn't just dump all of the Christians in a little subdivision behind the church house so that we can be a little Christian commune and like share cows and milk together and uh, play Bible Monopoly and watch reruns of Seventh Heaven every night. It's not what God does with Christians. No, God spreads us out by design. Why? So that we can infiltrate the community with the gospel. This is why Jesus comes along and says, you are salt and light. Right? So it's as though the church is a big salt shaker and the Holy Spirit comes along and kind of shakes us all over the city so that Christians saturate the city. Oh, wow, that's our vision statement. Do you see where it comes from? We exist to saturate Owensboro and engage the nations with the glory and knowledge of the Lord. 
This is why every time you share the gospel, and it made me so happy, I saw a lot of people after the first service doing it. When you share the gospel during the week, wherever it is, you go over to that board, that map, and you write it down, and you put it in the basket, and you take a little red pen, and you pin it on that map of Davis County. We're symbolically wanting to saturate that whole map with gospel shares because that's the mission of the church. And so you say, Jameis, well, what is my mission field? Listen, it may not be for you to get on an airplane and go to North Africa tomorrow. Now, for many, that's what God's calling you to do. But your mission field is where you already are anyway. Because God has strategically planted you there. So your mission field starts in your house. If you got kids or grandkids, that, that's your mission field. That's where it starts. And then moving out, your mission field is your neighborhood. Because remember, God determined the allotted boundaries in Acts 17. How long you would live on Hill Avenue or in Forest Hills or in Deer Valley, he determined your neighborhood and how long you'll be there. When God wants to move you to another neighborhood, he'll make it work out. And so who's the people that live beside you and in front of you and at the end of the cul-de-sac? Who's the family that every time you drive to church on Sunday, they're out in the front yard kicking the soccer ball and you know they're not going to church anywhere? Why do you think God moves you in beside them? You see, you, that, that's your mission field. And then it's where you work. Who are the people around you in your cubicle at the end of that assembly line? Who, and Okay, and then the places where you go play, whether you're doing bingo or hot yoga or whatever people do in Owensboro these days or bunko on Thursday nights with the ladies. Okay, that, that's your place. Wherever you get your coffee in the morning, that's your place. Wherever you eat on Thursday nights, because you typically see the same people, that, that's your mission field. It's where you already are. God sovereignly scatters and plants us there for his purpose. Now, here, here's what this means. It means together, church, let's just embrace God's sovereignty. Let's stop complaining about the house we live in and the neighborhood we live in and the car we drive, and the food we eat, and the little league our kids play in because it's Monday night, Tuesday night, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, and Saturday night. Can I just get a night off from Little League for once in my life? <laughs> let's just stop complaining about the way life is, and let's embrace God's sovereignty. God, you have me at Country Heights 14 nights a week for a reason. God, you make my wife want to go out to eat at the Golden Crowd three nights a week for a reason. God, well, I'm stuck in this house. It's falling apart and flooding underneath it for a reason. God, I'm stuck in this job where I haven't got a raise in way too long for a reason. I want to embrace God's sovereignty. And God's scattering in my life because he's got me there for a reason. So let's get out of the house. Let's not be those Americans who pull into the driveway, take the garage door opener, open it up, pull in, shut it, and nobody sees us until we do it again the next day. And that we live these private, quiet, inclusive lives that are not the life of a Christian in the Scripture. An introversion is no excuse for that. We're called to be salt and light. Well, you're not light if your blinds are always closed and your door's always locked. We got to get out. We've got to get off the church pew. Let's get outside the four walls of our community group. See, the, the, the danger of Christian fellowship is it's our tendency as Christians to just want to bunch up all together in a little holy huddle. 
because we're safe and we love one another. Now, don't get me wrong. We need one another. You better have community or you won't make it in this life. You better have people that you can pray with that confess sin with. You need all that. But I want to challenge our community groups. Get out of the living room. Because the purpose of the gathering in here and the purpose of the gathering in small groups is to ultimately scatter us out into the darkness for the mission. So if you're in a small group, pray for one another, eat together, serve one another, play Bible bingo together if you want to. Do whatever you got to do. But don't stay in the house. Spread out. Multiply your group into new neighborhoods that are unreached. Some of the community groups have been the same old people for way too long. Spread out. Get into the darkness. Because listen, and I want to say this as humbly as I can, but nobody ever got saved because Christians just sat around and studied the Bible together all day long. Get out of the house. Get out of the Bible study. Get out of the small group. Go proclaim Christ. That is how we reach the world. The mission of the church is not in these seats. It's in the streets. And so what's really encouraging and empowering is that it's not just the pastors and the church leaders that God uses to do this. It's every single Christian in this room is called to be a spirit-empowered missionary. And, and that is straight out of the text. Let me show it to you before we conclude. In verse 4, now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Now, when we hear that phrase, preaching the word, most of us think about what I'm doing. Oh, well, they got up behind a pulpit and preached. That's not what it's talking about here. Most Bible commentators agree that that phrase, preaching the word, is too strong of a translation. More literally, it should be translated, now those who were scattered went about gospelizing the word or gospeling the gospel or even gossiping the word of God. The first meaning of the word gossip was actually to chat or rehearse. That phrase is in the present tense in verse 4, which means they continually went around rehearsing the gospel, chatting about the gospel, communicating the gospel, and announcing the good news of Jesus Christ to the people they encounter. But what's really neat is that it was the lay people that were doing it. It was the congregation, not the church leaders primarily. Well, how do I know that? Go back to verse 1. Look at the little detail that Luke gives us. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered. I'm making the case that the all is primarily the congregation, the everyday church members. They were all scattered throughout the regions of, uh, of Judea and Samaria. Notice, except the apostles. You see that? So the leaders of the church, the apostles, they stayed in Jerusalem. It was the congregation, it was the church members, not the apostles. They were scattered about proclaiming the word of God and reaching the world for Jesus Christ. This is why I love the Yale historian, Kenneth Latore, says this. Look what he says. He says, the chief agents in the expansion of Christianity appear not to have been those who made it a profession, but men and women who carried out their livelihood in some secular manner and spoke their faith to those they met in this natural fashion. That the expansion of the church at this point did not depend upon the apostles, but on the grassroots, 
men and women gossiping the gospel, I love that, as they went. So Pleasant Valley, here's the word for us. If we're going to reach this city for Jesus, it's not because the pastors and the staff are going to do it. It's, it's not going to happen. It's going to take every single Christian in this room, and for that matter, every Christian in Owensboro together, embracing our identity that we are not just people who warm a pew for an hour and 20 minutes on Sunday mornings, but it's every Christian saying, I am a spirit-empowered missionary. I am salt, I am light, and I'm going to embrace that. That God has sovereignly scattered and planted you in your house, in your neighborhood, at your job, at Planet Fitness for a reason, and that is to reach this city for Jesus. Your life is more than going to work so we can pay the bills, eat dinner, and watch college football on Saturday. We were created for so much more than that. You were created for a purpose to know God and to make God known. You will be happier. You will be healthier. You will have more joy when you embrace that calling. So I'm going to ask our music team to come up. And uh, I want to I give you five points of application before we pray and sing. Maybe you want to get out your phone and take a screenshot of these, or if you have a bulletin, you can write it in there. It'll be fine as well. Here's five practical takeaways you can do from today's message. Number one, begin to do prayer walks around your neighborhood, praying for each home and that the Lord would open up opportunities for you to share the gospel. It's a great entry point. Get your exercise in anyway. Take a walk. But while you're walking, pray over each home. You don't have to like stop and lay hands on the home. It's a good way to get shot in Kentucky. All right? I'm not talking about doing any weird stuff. But just walk by and pray for the people that you see there. And ask the Lord to begin to grant you opportunities to share. Secondly, though, determine practical ways you can get to know your neighbors by serving them. So bake them some brownies or help them rake up the leaves this fall or um, maybe have a cookout and, and invite them over. Just look for practical ways to serve them so that you can get to know them so you can share the gospel. Because remember, God planted you in that. You've got that crazy neighbor that never keeps up with their yard for a reason. All right, you're their neighbor, not somebody else. What are you going to do to reach them? That's why you're there. Third, join us on Sunday the 15th and 22nd here at 2 p.m. We're going to go out with teams and share the gospel in local neighborhoods. But the reason we're doing that isn't just to share with these neighborhoods, but to train you to go do it in your own neighborhood. So gather on those two Sundays, put that down on your phone. And if you're afraid to do that, that's okay. Just show up and we'll model it for you. You can just kind of walk alongside. That's, that's the only way we're going to reach this city for Jesus. 60,000 people in Owensboro are not going to come to church here and all the other churches for that matter. It's going to take us going to them. So let's practice. Let's model that together. Number four, you can volunteer to help serve at our tent revival on September 27th. We're going to have a volunteer training night. You're all invited to right in here on Wednesday night, the 18th. Text message the word serve to 69922 to sign up for that. Uh, also, you can sign up on the iPads out front. We, we're going to need a lot of helpers that night to meet people, to greet them, to serve. And then finally, you can just go to our Discover class next Sunday from 11 to 1, where you can learn more ways how to get involved and serve. So if you haven't signed up for that, whether you've been here a week or 10 years, do so by texting the word register to 69922. And I want us to conclude by praying for a few things. And so let's, let's pray for two things. One, pray for boldness in sharing the gospel where God has planted you. Let's, let's go ahead and bow our heads. And I just want you to envision your neighborhood. Okay, see yourself on your front porch 
or in your front driveway. Now look over to your right, and who do you see? What kids do you see dribbling the ball in the driveway? What child do you see riding a bike? Now look over to your left, and what widow do you see swinging on her front porch? What dad do you see with his head under the hood of the car, changing out the spark plug? Who, who do you see? That, those are your people. God put you there for them. Okay, now pray for boldness. If, if you haven't met them yet, the first step is just getting to know them. Exchanging names. God, give me boldness to share the gospel. And then do the same thing for where you work. Go to your job in your head. Who do you see? Look, look to your left. Look to your right. Who works down the hall? Who's that lonely person that always eats lunch by themselves? Who's that woman that seems so sad every day? Who's the fellow whose wife just passed away? Who's the guy whose girlfriend just dumped him? Okay, those are your people. You're not there to earn a paycheck, simply. You are there to reach them for Jesus. Pray for boldness to engage them at work tomorrow, Tuesday. And then secondly, ask the Lord to give you five people you can invite to the tent revival on September 27th. It's probably going to be some of those same people. It's probably your neighbors or coworkers or friends. Say, Lord, give me five people and pray that they would come. Grab some invites on the way out. Take it to them. Maybe you want to canvas your neighborhood. Ask the Lord to bring you five people that will go with you that night that they'll be saved. Let's take a few moments praying to that end. And then we'll sing.